0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at some of the explanations for why life-saving vaccines against COVID-19 are unavailable in much of the world while being refused by substantial numbers of people where they are widely available. Clips today are from The Mehdi Hassan Show, Democracy Now!, Straight White American Jesus, This Is Hell, and The David Pakman Show, with additional members-only clips from Reveal, and Democracy Now. And in my final comments, I will explain the difference between a goal and a tactic to explain why libertarian ideas of freedom as the ultimate focus is so misguided and leads to so much unnecessary suffering.
1: If the last year has taught us anything, it's when we ignore science, people die. Yet we've seen an entire faction of our political leadership and fellow countrymen, a faction that often likes to tout its pro-life credentials, just bury their heads in the sand when presented with cold, hard facts and cold, dead bodies. And not just when it comes to the pandemic, we see it with climate change, too. A recent study finds that clean energy measures in the Democrats' Build Back Better plan could save 50,000 lives by the year 2030, simply by improving the quality of our air. The outlook... By 2050, 318,000 premature deaths possibly avoided. And yet, we have a Republican Party that really seems to have no desire to address climate change, joined by coal-state Democrat Joe Manchin. We see this with the pandemic, too. A study in the Lancet Medical Journal finds that Republican-led Florida and Texas could have avoided 22,000 deaths if they had reached the same vaccination rates as New Mexico, Wisconsin, Connecticut, Massachusetts, or Colorado, the top five vaccinated states according to the CDC. But both governors Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott have resisted mask and vaccination mandates throughout the pandemic, costing their states, according to The Lancet, more than 20,000 lives. In the meantime, while Florida and Texas were being crushed by the Delta variant, the attacks on science and on top health officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci continued. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis even built his marketing campaign around, you guessed it, don't Fauci my Florida, with beer koozies and t-shirts. Funny, until it's not. How did we get to the point where our country's top doctor has to walk around with 24-hour armed bodyguards because he's become a hate figure on the right? For talking about science. And he's not alone. The attacks are being unleashed on scientists all over the world, from online abuse to death threats. And the one common thread? Right-wing factions that often reject science, which in the US is amplified by the Republican Party. But this is not a new trend. Back in 2005, author Chris Mooney wrote a book called The Republican War on Science. In a review, Harvard science historian Naomi Oreskes wrote, "'Scientists have traditionally been loath to foray into politics "'for fear of politicising science, "'but Mooney's book makes it clear that when sensible people "'stand on the sidelines, a great deal of nonsense can be spread.'" She goes on to say that scientists need to do more to present their knowledge to the rest of society because there is no shortage of people willing to misrepresent it.
2: Noam, can you talk about how you think that skepticism can be overcome? I mean, you yourself, a serious critic of the... um, you know, the corporate government alliance, why people should trust large pharmaceutical companies like Moderna and Pfizer that are making billions, why in this case we should trust that vaccines will save the
3: population. If the information came from Pfizer and Moderna, there would be no reason to trust it. But it just happens that... 100% of health uh, agencies throughout the world and the vast majority of the medical profession and the health sciences uh, accept the actually quite overwhelming evidence uh, that uh, vaccination radically reduces uh, onset of infection and deaths. The evidence on that is very compelling, and it's therefore not surprising that it's basically universally accepted by relevant authorities. So, yes, if we heard it just from uh, big pharma PR, there'd be every reason for skepticism. But you can look at the data, they're available, and you can, when you do so, you can understand why there is essentially universal acceptance among the agencies that have no stake in the matter other than trying to save lives. You can understand why poor African countries who aren't paid off by big pharma are pleading for vaccines. Their health agencies are. Uh, and this, in fact, the only exception I noted about this, apart from Trump for a period, was Bolsonaro's Brazil, and he is now being uh, under charges of a long senatorial investigation for charges of crimes against humanity for his failure to follow the normal protocol of uh, trying to maximize the use of vaccines. And now that his uh, reticence, reluctance on this matter has been overturned, Uh, It's having the usual effect. Vaccinations are increasing and incidence of disease and death is sharply declining. That correlation is so clear that it takes uh, a real uh, uh, strange refusal to look at facts to see it. And again, as I say, health agencies throughout the world are uniform and agreed with the medical profession on the efficacy of vaccines. They're not. There are other things that have to be done. Social distancing, uh, care, masking in crowded places. Uh, there are measures that have to be taken. Uh, countries where these measures have been followed carefully are doing quite well. Uh, But uh, where there's a high level of skepticism, whatever its roots, there are serious problems.
2: And what do you think the U.S. should do to ensure that countries get vaccines around the world, not only for altruistic reasons, but because you can't end this pandemic here or anywhere unless um, these vaccines get out everywhere. And I'm talking about Moderna and Pfizer. Moderna, the U.S. gave billions to Pfizer. Um, the U.S. promised, you know, to purchase so much, and both corporations, among others, have made billions. And yet, what can the U.S. do to ensure that These vaccines can be made in other places, like requiring that Moderna release the recipe. Still, they will make a fortune. What has Biden not done um, that would allow people to have access to these life saving um, vaccines?
3: I should say that uh, Europe's record is even worse than that of the United States. Biden has made some effort, but the Wealthy countries have, not including the United States, though not primarily the United States, they have not taken measures that are within their capacity to ensure that uh, other countries that have the resources to produce vaccines will have access not only to the products, the vaccines, but also to the process of manufacturing them, I should recognize that the World Trade Organization rules instituted mainly in the 1990s, largely under U.S. initiative, they provide—they are radically protectionist, radically anti-free market. They provide protection to major corporations, big pharma, not only for the products they produce but to the processes by which they produce them. And that patent can easily be broken. Uh, The governments have the capacity to insist that the processes be available and that vaccines be distributed to the countries that need it. Uh, First of all, this will save uncounted numbers of lives. And as you said, it's... uh, It means saving ourselves. If you let uh, the virus run rampant in poor countries, everyone understands that mutation is likely uh, the kind of mutation that led to the Delta variant, now the Delta Plus variant in India. Uh, And uh, who knows what will develop. Could be. uh, We've been kind of lucky so far. The coronaviruses have been either highly lethal and not too contagious, like Ebola, or uh, highly contagious but not too lethal, like uh, COVID-19. But the next one coming down the pike might be both, might even be non-suppressible by vaccines. We know the measures that have to be taken to try to prevent this from happening. Uh, research, preparations, health systems that work. It's not a small point. Like, uh, there are now uh, new antivirals coming along, which don't stop the disease, but prevent hospitalization. But you have to have a functioning health system. It's very hard to see how these could even be usable in the United States, where the health system simply is not organized in such a way that people can get access to what they need.
1: one of the most educated and scientifically advanced societies in human history do we end up with leading Republican politicians attacking scientists at campaign rallies and some of their followers threatening scientists with violence and death?
4: Well, one of the things we know is that none of this is really about the science. The science is good. The science is solid. We understand evolutionary theory. We understand climate change. We understand that the Uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus causes the COVID-19 disease. But this issue has become deeply, many of these issues, all these issues really have become deeply politically polarized because of deliberate attempts to polarize it by people on the conservative side of the political spectrum. Going back to the 1980s, we've seen conservatives and libertarians and representatives of the Republican Party deliberately trying to create distrust in science that pointed to the need for government action on public health and environmental issues. So if we go back to the 1980s, we see the Republican administration under Ronald Reagan challenging the scientific evidence of acid rain, doubting the scientific evidence of the ozone hole, yes. and starting out the evidence of climate change, because they didn't want the government to have to act on these issues.
1: So just picking up on that, and just to be clear for our viewers, in your view, how much of the distrust of science and scientific research is a result of people like the Koch brothers, uh, of big corporations or billionaires on the right, quote unquote libertarians, funding this anti-science stuff simply because they don't want to be regulated, they don't want to be taxed, they want to be left alone by big government?
4: I think almost all of it. I mean, if you look at the evidence, which I and my colleagues have done, you find very little evidence that people who are rejecting vaccines, for example, really have some kind of principled or informed scientific concern. It's almost always a problem about distrusting government, uh, being fearful about the government trying to take away your freedom. If you look at the images from the rallies that occurred last year against mask mandates, almost none of them had signs about the science. Nobody was asking. About the sample size, for example, in the clinical trials, the posters, the signs were all about distrusting government, being mad at government, blaming the government. And this idea has been fostered by people on the right for exactly the reason you just said. These corporations don't want to be regulated, they want the freedom to just do what they want no matter who gets hurt.
1: One of the posters we saw a lot of both on masks and vaccines was My Body, My Choice, which never seems to apply to the abortion debate. Uh, Let me ask you this. How much of the anti-masker, anti-vaccine arguments and tactics on the right have mirrored the arguments and tactics they previously deployed against climate change, something you studied closely in your landmark book, Merchants of Doubt*.
4: Very closely. What we see in all of these debates is a kind of deliberate attempt to foster distrust of government, because government is the main tool that ordinary people have to fight back against corporate polluters, against the fossil fuel industry or the tobacco industry. If you can get people to distrust government, then you strip them of the most powerful means of redress that they have. And that's what people like the Koch brothers and other uh, powerful forces on the right want to do. There is this
1: sentiment or prejudice even especially among some liberals that this is all to do with when you look at you know the rallies and people screaming about Fauci this is all to do with lack of education and the anti-science folks on the right we're told are all rural or backward or superstitious uneducated folks and that's not true is it you look at senator Rand Paul who thinks he doesn't need a vaccine he's a medical doctor Scott Atlas who pushed crazy theories about alternative COVID treatment and herd immunity is a radiologist who worked at Stanford
4: correct. This has almost nothing to do with education. This has almost everything to do with political ideology, vested interest, and profits of corporations. We know studies have shown that among Republicans, the more educated they are, the less likely they are to accept climate change. So this is very depressing for a professor like myself, but it does show us this is about education. This is not a problem of scientific illiteracy. This is a political problem.
1: On the one hand, since the start of the pandemic, we've had a lot of people saying, listen to the experts and follow the science. But a lot of the science has changed rapidly over the past 18 months. A lot of the experts got some big things wrong. Masking, for example, at the outset of the pandemic. Has that not just affected the credibility of the scientific community as a whole in America, but also the right's ability to
4: say, see, they're not infallible. We shouldn't follow their advice blindly. It's hard to say because we don't have a lot of good data about what has happened in this last year because it's all very new. Um, I think certainly the right wing exploits any small mistake or any small error that scientists make. But I think the important thing to explain to people, and this is what I do in my own work, is to point out anytime there's a new question, then there will always be a period of learning. And in the early stages, scientists will change their minds as they learn new things. And learning is a good thing. It's not something we should be embarrassed or ashamed of. And scientists shouldn't be ashamed to say, hey, we've learned some new things. It is important for the scientific community to be humble, to be clear about the uncertainties when you are facing a new problem. But that's very different than something like climate change, where we've known for 30 years that human activities were driving disruptive climate change. So this is why in my own work I emphasize the importance of scientific consensus. Some of the issues you just mentioned, we didn't have a consensus a year and a half ago because we didn't know. But when it comes to something like climate change or the harms of smoking cigarettes, we know.
1: So let me ask you this, what is the solution to all this anti-scientific sentiment, which seems to be growing uh, in the United States? You mentioned that education uh, is almost nothing to do with this. Uh, You mentioned it's not actually about the science or scientific research. If it's all about politics and politicization, then is there a solution? (laughs) Because like every other political issue, it will just remain
4: polarized. Well, you're right. It is a very difficult issue. So let me say two things. First of all, It's not to say that education is useless. Certainly educating people about how science works, how science is a process of learning and discovery and not just a body of facts, that is important. And certainly there are many people in this country, particularly school teachers, who are eager for good information, and it really behooves the scientific community to do everything that we can to give those people good information. But we also have to recognize that if a problem is political, then you can't fix it by just giving people more scientific facts you actually have to be willing to say, hey, this is political, and let me explain why the political characterization of this problem is incorrect. And that's a strategy that has been shown to work, so it is possible to identify the politics and then work around them.
5: The U.S. has administered over 500 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine. That's half a billion doses. That's more than enough for every man, woman, and child in the U.S. Numerically, of course, like not every man, woman, and child in the U.S. can have vaccine. But the point is that the arguments that there's something weird about it or things we don't know about it or side effects that are going to emerge or whatever is just, it's just not plausible half a million doses or excuse me, half a billion doses in. So, so here's, here's what happened. And, and the reason I, I think Aaron Rodgers is interesting is because he's, he's come out just full on anti-vaxxer now, but no doubt still does not see himself as an anti-vaxxer. And I think he captures, I talked about this with the comments he made previously that we'll, we'll mention briefly. He captures the way that people fall into these ideologies, right? You and I will talk about white nationalism or Christian nationalism or anti-vaxxing or, any number of belief systems and ideologies that people have. And I think that a lot of people really truly believe that that is not them, right? They can't step outside and see what they're saying or see what they're uh, or what they're into. So, so here's, here's what happened. Um, This is a background on Rogers Um, back in August. He, he was asked if he'd been vaccinated. He said he had been immunized. It turns out that he was not vaccinated. He sought some, kind of homeopathic remedies and things like this. And so he was not vaccinated. The NFL knew this, and there's a different set of protocols for unvaccinated players. Uh, he was following all of those and so forth, but then he tested positive uh, for COVID a little less than uh, two months ago. Right. And he said that he was uh, allergic to some unspecified ingredient. Uh, he said he had done lots of research. He did what was best for his body and so forth. Um, was pretty defiant, but was really clear. He said that he was not an anti-vaxxer, that it wasn't about opposing the vaccines, and so forth. And and this is the point that I made back then, and people can go back and listen to it, that this is how people fall into these ideologies. Well, this week, he goes back uh, on uh, a sports show, the Pat McAfee show, which is where he made these statements before, and really like doubles and triples down on this. Um, and demonstrates all the key elements for me of anti-vaxxer ideology, uh, and how it works and how it plays out. Um, and so I'm just going to walk through some of the things that he said. The first thing he said is he decried what he says is a two class system in the NFL, um, that there were different policies for vaccinated players versus unvaccinated players. He later says that the unvaccinated players are simply being punished for refusing to get a vaccine uh, and live out their conscience. And this echoes perfectly everything the right has been saying about vaccine mandates, everything they've been saying about vaccines from the start. Um, now in the voice and on the lips of Aaron Rodgers, right, this really notable uh, NFL figure. Um, he said, quote, that there is no pandemic of the unvaxed. Um in other words, and, that, and that's this notion that uh, – and he's he's quoting and throwing back CDC language that was given that there was a, a pandemic of the unvaxxed. And he basically says there's, there's no difference. There's no benefit to being vaccinated. Uh, people might have followed. Uh, Brad, you might have seen this last night. The House, the U.S. House, had to delete a tweet that they had sent out that said, um, if booster shots work, why don't they work? And then they had to delete it because of backlash, right? This notion that, well, people with vaccines or boosters are getting breakthrough cases, so they don't really do anything. So this this whole notion that that the unvaccinated are at greater risk. It's all it's all just a bunch of bunk. But what are the numbers on that? And I just want to point this out. Um. The Delta variant, um, people. So we we know Delta and Omicron, and and, and the Delta variant, unvax people are five times more likely to get COVID. They are ten times more likely to be hospitalized. They are ten times more likely to die. With the Omicron variant, which we're all still learning about, uh, Pfizer uh, said that their booster increases antibody protection twenty five fold. And Moderna found that their booster increases antibody protection 37 fold. So, right. So it's just false, right? When, when Rogers has this notion, it's just false that there's, there's nothing, uh, you know, that the vaccines don't do anything. He said, um, vaccinated people just blame unvaccinated people because the vaccine they took to avoid getting the virus doesn't stop them from getting the virus. He basically is like, the vaccine doesn't work. And now they're upset. So they want to blame the unvaccinated. Just everything, everything we've seen for the last year, the whole notion, the quote unquote, the science is always changing. The scientists don't know anything. It doesn't work. The misconstruals of science, uh, nobody ever claimed that the vaccines are going to be 100% effective. There's no such thing, right? But data points keep showing that the vaccines, if you do get a breakthrough infection, it's more mild. That appears to be the case with Omicron from what we know, from what I've read. And that is changing because we're learning about it all the time. Um it's simply not true, and yet Rogers says it's now like the flu, uh, and it should be treated the same, uh, that it's just ideology, that it isn't. But he says this, and this is, the, this is the other piece of this ideology where it gets really wrapped up in notions of freedom and freedom of speech and opposing, quote-unquote, cancel culture. That's what Rogers has also said, is that people are trying to cancel him. He says, if science can't be questioned, it's not science, it's propaganda. And he leans on the fact that he has his opinion. He says, I'm not a doctor, I get that, but I have my opinion and it should be respected, and we should be sharing opinions. And you know, here's the thing science and opinion are not the same thing, right? Philosophers of science, people who study science, people who study scientific method methods say will say one of the things that makes science science is that it's based, it's supposed to be based on some sort of empirically verifiable or falsifiable data. And that the findings and claims of science should be able to be replicated, right? If a bunch of people do the same experiment the same way with the same things over and over and over, they ought to get the same results, right? Or it should be falsifiable. You can say, if A happens, then we think this. And if A doesn't happen, then we think something else. So we do question science all the time. But you question science with counter evidence or with data, or with things like that. It's not just opinion. Going to a scientist and saying, I think you're wrong because I don't want to get a vaccine. That's not counter evidence, right? And so when Rogers, it's that slippage. And people do this all the time. And Rogers is doing that when he says, my valid my, my, my opinion as the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, one of the greatest quarterbacks he'd ever played, is somehow valid when we're talking about virology, immunology, internal medicine, whatever. It just doesn't follow.
6: just had a presidency that got into power because it's about make America great again. And this nostalgic look back to the 50s is some great period in time. It was a great period in time when it came to distributing vaccines to the world when it came to uh, Salk's polio vaccine. So what the hell happened to the United States that all of a sudden now that's not a priority. We no longer feel that way, even when we're being nostalgic about that era as some great time for America.
7: Yeah, I mean, the, the two sort of stories there that you have to tell are the rise of pharma as a trillion dollar powerhouse industry with a lock on the government. Uh, it run, Famously, it runs the richest lobbying shop in D.C. and um, Geneva, and that is a big part of it. And concurrently, you have its very effective leadership, quote unquote, in Uh, globalizing the model that it established in the U.S. through the World Trade Organization. And that is uh, a very recent story. I think a lot of people, one of the things about this sort of shallow historical memory moment that we're in is we forget how new so much of this shit is. I mean, before the WTO, there was zero expectation or obligation on the part of any country on earth to respect any other country's um, drug patents for the most part. And And they didn't. Um, And that was forced upon the global south, basically, uh, by a very small number of um, executives, especially with Pfizer, they sort of led the charge, we're talking about like a dozen people um, in partnership with with uh, the US government, that basically drove home the, the intellectual property regime that we're dealing with right now. And um, you know there, that was a fight that lasted a long, long time. Um, the, there was a rearguard battle that led by uh, India, Brazil, and uh, a lot of other large countries in the global South. Um, that finally they lost because you know the U.S. was at the peak of its post-cold war power, and they basically said, "Look, if you want access to our markets, if you want development funds, you're going to sign on this dotted line," and they eventually did. And, you know, when you talk to the negotiators from these countries about those days, they inevitably pause and choke up (laughs) in either like grief or rage because they knew exactly what they were signing in 1994, uh, which went into effect the next year. And that was a death warrant for millions of people. And then, of course, with the global AIDS crisis, especially in Africa, five years later, that was borne out. And anyone could have seen that coming and everyone did see it coming. In fact, um, and that was a huge, huge global, uh, Debate at the time, remember battle in Seattle in uh, 1999, the WTO, that's what this was about. We were having the same conversation in the context of a different pandemic. And one of the things about 9-11 that was so tragic was it completely derailed all of that. And now we're having to sort of relearn this history and these lessons and go back to sort of the starting line. But, you know, there were people fighting in the streets and tear gas over this issue uh, not all that long ago because it's it's completely obscene it's completely immoral it's and it's it's dictated from above it's um it's not natural there's nothing that says uh you know scientific knowledge should be or is a natural property right i mean if anything all the evidence points in the other direction um you know every argument you can think of that basically this is a system failure and it has not worked uh, in terms of access, in terms of incentivizing the needed R&D on uh, actual public health threats. But here we are thinking this is just like the state of things. And without this system, we're never going to have a new medicine again. And we're going to go back to the dark ages. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely absurd. And the the industry's ability to, uh, you know, continue this line and in, 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 in sort of sell it is a testimony to the amount of money they have and their sort of messaging think tank network. It's been very effective uh, and also just a, um, the disappearance of memory, I think, to, to a certain extent. And, and we need to go back and review the episodes that led to this.
6: That gave me goosebumps because it reminded me of us covering the battle for Seattle back in 1999 and how the people we had on the show were saying this is exactly what was going to happen. This is a system of rising global inequality, and this is a system that is a new form of colonialism. Does intellectual property rights, does that change science into a weapon of colonialism?
7: Uh, effectively, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, to avoid uh, precisely uh, that conclusion because these the companies are mostly based in a handful of uh, Western countries, which are the richest countries in the world, which became that way through this enormous historical centuries long wealth transfer, um, which now takes different forms. And one of them is uh, intellectual property around um different forms of knowledge monopolies of which drugs is, is the most consequential.
8: I want to draw resonances here. I want to point out resonances, I should say, with a lot of things we talk about with religious fundamentalists and uh, other uh, religious groups we talk about, Christian nationalists, etc. is there's often in that worldview of false binary and why? Okay. So let's, we, you know, Dan, you I, I could sit here and just say, Hey, look how stupid Aaron Rodgers is. And look how, you know, we could be a show where we're just like, you know, religious fundamentalism is just full of stupid people. Right. And it's obviously that's not what we do here. If as good stu- uh, scholars of religion, we ask, what does this do for people? What it does for people, right. When you reduce the world to a, a binary is you gain control. Right. Because instead of there being a lot of different categories and a lot of different moving parts, you have one side or the other. Okay. So if in a religious world, it's good and evil or us and them, God versus Satan. Hey, there you go. Are you with God? Are you with Satan? Are you with good or are you with evil? It simplifies things and it helps people cope, right? It helps people maneuver through the world. Now that doesn't mean it's good per se, quote unquote, right? Doesn't mean that it's the uh, most Uh, a helpful path for human flourishing. It doesn't mean it even corresponds to reality, but there is a function to it. I think Rogers is doing something with a similar function, right? He wants to reduce this to, well, either the vaccines work or they don't. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, Scientists say they do, but obviously they're lying, so they must have another motive. And there you go. We either have they work or they don't. I don't want to hear anything else. I don't want to hear about how statistics show that those people who were vaxxed and boosted are experiencing much less severe symptoms than those who are not. I don't want to hear about how hospitalization rates are uh, much uh, decreased among the vaccinated rather than the vaccinated. I don't want to hear about any of those sort of details, nuances, any of the texture. I just want, well, do they work or they don't, right? I mean, it's and it's funny, right? Because this is how you also, friends, if you want tools to think about this, this is how people do the gun debate. Well, Never gonna get all the the, the guns and, and the killing out of the bad guy's hands, so we might as well give the good guys the guns and let it let it rip, right? And it's either one or the other. And again, this has a function, control, certainty. There's a good guy and a bad guy. There's God and Satan. There's well, either the vax the vaccine works or it doesn't. And and I think Rogers is showing why. And friends, if there's another takeaway here. This is why the anti-vax movement, even in non-Christian and non-religious iterations, is finding allies within Christian circles, within fundamentalist religious circles, because they share this. Hey, the world is scary and messy and complex, and I'd really like it just to be one or the other. And so if there's other people around who reduce the world to one or the other, we're going to find some sort of like—we're cousins somehow, even if we're not sharing the same exact worldview— uh, I have one more thought on that, but does that make sense to you, Dan?
5: That totally makes sense to me, and I think this notion of control and like simplifying something that is in fact complex—it it makes sense. It's an impulse that makes sense, right? Unfortunately, that's just reality. Sometimes is complex. The last uh, one thing I'll just add to this because I think what you're what you're doing is really useful to look at these—we might call these kind of formal similarities or structural similarities—the way that they work in these ways of reasoning—is because this is also when well, one of the things you're highlighting is. To create this either-or option, you also steer people toward one of those, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's not—it's not neutral. So what you do is you set one that is like an impossibly high bar that cannot be met, right? Hundred percent imm- immunity against COVID—never going to happen. Can't happen. Scientifically, physiologically, whatever, impossible. And then when somebody doesn't meet the criteria, you say, "See what I said was justified." We see the same logic in racism, in xenophobia, right? And for example, people do this all the time and say, well, I'm not opposed to immigrants. I'm not opposed to immigrants from anywhere. I'm not opposed to anybody of any religious background. As long as they they fully assimilate to American culture, meaning basically as long as they become white and Christian, I'm fine. Well, then it turns out that lots of, say, Muslims from parts of the world are never going to meet that criteria. So then they say, well, yeah, I'm I'm opposed to the Muslims coming in, but it's not because I'm racist or xenophobic. It's because they won't assimilate. Why do I bring up that example? Because what I think you're highlighting is this is why these ideologies often come in clusters, is because it's the same thing. When, when Aaron Rodgers says, well, if you, if you question the science of vaccines, they'll label you an anti-vaxxer. It's exactly the same as, well, if you want to protect the borders, they'll call you a racist and these people sit down over a beer and they get to know each other or at a holiday party and man what you're saying sounds a lot like what i'm saying what you're feeling is a persecution complex looks like it feels a lot like what i'm feeling so yeah so maybe maybe it's not just vaccines maybe it is the race stuff and the religion stuff and that's why these things hook together and that's why to me it's such a big deal and then, and that's the other piece of it with the uh i think that moral dimension because if somebody says well how can they consistently use that that Rhetorical ploy one direction in one context, in another. It's that moral component. We talked about that with, you know, abortion, right? So the only moral option can be its eradication. I think you get a similar thing with the vaccine stuff with the appeal to rights, this unquestioned notion of rights, which b and wants to do the philosophical work to define exactly what a right is or where it comes from or how we get them. It turns out it's really, really complicated. But if you can just play them, they're like a trump card, right? Oh, you're violating my rights. You're violating my rights. You're violating my rights. Therefore, you can't have vaccine mandates or require vaccines or, or whatever. So, again, I think I think you're highlighting that that similar dimension that plays across these different issues, which, again, my big point is always this is why they come together. This is why. If I know that somebody is an anti-vaxxer, typically, and I'm not putting this on Aaron Rogers, I don't know where he is on other things, but most of the time, if I know somebody's an anti-vaxxer, I know they don't support Black Lives Matter, and I know that they're probably opposed abortion rights.
8: So I, w- I don't want to leave this conversation without coming back to what you said about opinion and uh, and respecting it. A- my, my opinion should be respected. So let's just have a mantra. You ready? Uh, my opinion should be respected. Uh, Aaron Rodgers says it. Uncle Ron says it. Hey, you should respect my opinion. It, it matters. Okay. My response is, here's my mantra. People should be respected, not opinions. So everybody, right, who is a human being, their voice, them as a person, them as a human, them as an whatever you want to call a human being, an organism, a creature, whatever you want to call them, they deserve respect. They deserve right, uh, a chance to explain their position and their experience. Okay. People should be respected. However, there are opinions that once they have been articulated and once they have been given, right, do not demand respect because they are not based on evidence. They're not based on data. They're not based on good faith explanation. They're not based on truth. They're not based on a lot of things that would mean that the opinion would be something one would respect. Okay. And so when Roger says my opinion should re- be respected, my response is no, it, it shouldn't actually, Aaron Rodgers, because you explained it and it was based on very faulty reasoning. It was based on uh, poor reference points. The data that you, that you use in order to build the case is, as Dan Miller just pointed out, uh, scientifically unviable. And so I, I, this does not mean that you, Aaron Rodgers, as a person— right are canceled it doesn't mean that i don't think that you deserve flourishing health uh uh uh, uh, protection under the law blah 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 it just means that what you're saying about vaccines does not deserve my respect it does not i'm sorry and unless you can come up with a better case i'm not going to change my mind about that
6: We are talking about colonialism when it comes to intellectual property rights. You also point out that during the uh, HIV era in, in Africa, you write that since they could not be, uh, the pharmaceuticals argued about people in South Africa, since they could not be relied on to take their med- medicines on a schedule, giving Africans access to the drugs would allow for the emergence of drug resistant HIV variants, according to industry and its government and media allies. Our defenses of patents rooted not only in colonialism, but in stereotypes of the political South are patents and their thinking grounded in not only racism, colonialism, but white supremacy and privilege.
7: That argument certainly was, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, the the systems of power that they represent. Yes. Um, but, you know, in terms, I don't think there's anything inherently racist about um, a patent. It's they're just not um, a good idea when it comes to uh, to medicines from from a equity, justice, or, or R&D perspective. Um, but that, that argument that was used, um, at that time, it's shocking in retrospect, um, to think how widespread that was. After the article came out, someone sent me a link to a, a West Wing episode, um, a show that I never watched, but apparently is, is quite horrible and is responsible for a lot of the bad things in the world. (laughs) Um, And uh, they repeat that argument with this somber tone, like it was a conversation stopper, you know, like it was just settled the matter, um, which was surprising to me. But when you go back and look at that time, you have not just industry and and high level government officials making that case, but also people in the media. And I mentioned Andrew Sullivan, who was making that case repeatedly uh, in his blog in the late 90s, early 2000s, and it turned out that he was accepting funding under the table from pharma the whole time. And then when he got caught, he basically said, I have nothing to be ashamed of, there's nothing wrong with this. Um, and the fact that New York, mag I know this is a little bit of a, a diversion here, but the fact that New York Magazine hired him after that happened, and it was well known, is just, you know, tells you everything you need to know. Um, and the fact that people still take that guy seriously is just... Uh, I don't even know what to say.
6: Yeah, neither do I. So uh, I think I was having that conversation with Alex Coburn like 20 years ago. The you point out the artificial shortage of vaccines is primarily caused by the inappropriate use of intellectual property rights. So I just want to make sure that people understand this. How is there an artificial shortage of vaccines right now, and is that shortage intentional? <sighs>
7: I don't think anyone would want there to be less vaccines, although you could make an argument that less vaccines results in a higher price and controlling the market involves, um, involves a, a shortage aspect. Yes. Um, so from the point of view of industry, um, it, there's a there's a relationship between supply and price. Uh, you can't, you know, it's just basic capitalism. They want to talk about capitalism. Let's talk about capitalism. There you go. Um, and, you know, would supply be better? Uh, w- would the supply crisis be uh, less serious if we had taking production more seriously at the beginning and not let IP slow it down? Absolutely. There were lots of people saying, hey, over here, like places like Bangladesh. Um, no, this goes back to your racism question. You, you know what, Chuck? Uh, I think that actually deserves more attention. Places like Bangladesh uh, said, we can make this stuff. We, we can do one of these vaccines that are ready to come online. And Gates and uh, a lot of governments were like, eh, well, you know, maybe you can't do it up to snuff. This is really complicated stuff. Um, so there, w- there was a certain amount of um, condescension that was sort of dripping with, I think, um, you know, racism or, or Northern Northern superiority there that, that came into play. Absolutely. And is still coming into play. They're still using this very condescending language about how complicated these vaccines are to make and how everything has to be up to Western standards and up to snuff. But You know, the the generics industry in the South um, actually makes those same product lines make a lot of the name brand drugs that we buy. So that argument has always been a little bit disingenuous. They use the same factories. They just put it in different bottles and it's good enough for them to sell at the monopoly prices. But then when it challenges their interests, they say, oh, wait, you don't want anything from these factories. So that's something that people should keep in mind. But yeah, absolutely. The supply crisis would not be as bad as it is had IP not been allowed to slow down, ramp, and scale up a year ago. I mean, we lost a crucial year because of this. So whatever happens down the line, we lost the crucial year. And that is something that we're going to have to um, come to terms with.
9: There's this guy called Robert Malone. Uh, Robert Malone is someone who has for a period of time now been credited with and taken credit for developing mRNA vaccine technology. Now, this is a claim that has been fact checked quite a bit. It's a bit of an exaggeration. What the right wingers want you to believe is that Robert Malone is the guy who created mRNA vaccination. And now he's totally against it and thinks it's terrible and dangerous and wants to destroy the monster he created and all this different stuff. Okay. A more sober analysis, and you can just Google a number of different, very good stories about this, is that he was one of many people over a long period of time who did research that contributed To the development of the technology, which of course eventually can get applied to one thing or another, and now a couple of the current COVID vaccines are based on the mRNA. Okay, you get the idea, right? So, so that's part number one. The second part is Robert Malone has now been uh, banned from Twitter for spreading COVID disinformation. And this is, of course, bringing out all of the that's fascism and communism and authoritarianism and its violation of free speech and all these different. So it's bringing out those people. It's also bringing out the people who are of the mindset of the the truth, trademark, The the truth about covid vaccines and covid itself is being suppressed. It's being covered up, et cetera, et cetera. So Robert Malone got himself an appearance on an emergency podcast with Joe Rogan and in it, he, I don't know that he coined the term, but he kind of made a portmanteau of two terms that exist. And that term is mass formation psychosis. He is saying that this mob psychosis plagues, um, um, the side of science when it comes to covid and what is incredible i mean this clip has gone gigaviral millions upon millions of views when you listen to what he's saying it sounds like he's explaining what is plaguing the american right wing the covid deniers the vaccine conspiracists the trumpers the stop the stealers but he's not talking about that let's just get right into the clip and then we're going to talk about
10: it listen really closely so from basically European intellectual inquiry into what the heck happened in Germany in the 20s and 30s. you know, Very intelligent, highly educated population, and they went barking mad. Um, and how did that happen? Um, the answer is mass formation psychosis. When you have a society that has become decoupled from each other and has free-floating anxiety in a sense that things don't make sense, we can't understand it, And then their attention gets focused by a leader or a series of events. Guys, he's describing Trumpism. What we have, I mean, it's,
9: I almost feel like I'm over, it's, it's too on the nose. Like, I, I feel like if I give any explanation, I'm over explaining. It sounds like he's describing the mass psychosis of Trumpism that I've been talking about for years, but he's not. He's talking about people who accept the vaccine science
10: on one small point just like hypnosis they literally become hypnotized and can be led anywhere and yeah and 70
9: something million of them ended up voting for Trump
10: one of the th- aspects of that phenomena is the people that they identify as their leaders the ones typically that come in and say you have this pain and I can solve it for you I and I alone guys he's quoting Trump he's
9: He's quoting Trump. Here is here is Trump literally saying I alone can fix it. I alone can fix it. I will
1: restore law and order to our country.
9: Do you guys remember that? It he's quoting Trump verbatim. But we're supposed to believe it's the, you know, I don't want to call it the left because there's Republicans that accept science and it. It I've never seen anything like this.
10: OK, can fix this problem for you. OK, then they will lead. They will follow that person through. Yeah. Ha- it doesn't matter whether they lie to him or whatever.
9: That's exactly what happened with Trump. He lied to them about all of it. I mean, it's, it, how does uh, it they, now? Uh, they're, they're all on this now. All the right wingers are now. Yeah, Dr. Robert Malone explained what's
10: going on with these leftists, this mass formate. The data are irrelevant. And furthermore, <laughs> anybody who questions That narrative is to be immediately attacked. They are the other. This is central to mass formation psychosis. And this is what has happened. We had all those conditions. If you remember back before 2019, everybody was complaining, the world doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. Um, And we're all isolated from each other. We're all on our little tools. We're not connected socially anymore, except through social media.
9: There's something about these types of typically it's, it's guys where they talk in a certain way. I mean, where they, they do what they're accusing that when he talks about hypnosis, what you, when you listen to the way that Brett Weinstein has spoken about vaccines, he goes, well, well the um, it's uh, spike protein is cytotoxic. And I, I'm concerned that listen, they have a way of talking. And Ben Shapiro has it, too, although it's a different way, very different way of talking where it almost doesn't matter what they say. Now, what the, the now they're all talking about mass formation psychosis. What is that? Um, this is a combination. The term mass formation psychology is a pre-existing term, and it just means like crowd or mob psychology. And they're just saying he's adding psychosis to it to say, well, it's a form of psychosis. It's a mass. It's a mob psychosis of sorts. Um. What is incredible about this is that we have to share this because this is the best description I've ever heard of the MAGA movement, except he's not applying it to that. When I listen to it, I'm thinking, wow, what a what a perfect analysis of what has plagued this country with the MAGA movement for years now. But he's not talking about that, like the the unaware lack of awareness about the irony is incredible. Now, just because you come up with a name for something doesn't mean it accurately describes anything. And the truth is, I've been describing what's going on since covid in this way for a long time. You know, back in January of last year, 2021, I did a segment called the shared psychosis of Trumpism. I mean, I I literally described this, except he's he's describing it, but not actually talking about Trumpism. In May of last year, I did a segment called fifty four percent of Republicans think Trump riots were led by violent left wing protesters, where I described this as a group psychosis. That's verbatim the word that I used. So it's not a new concept and it couldn't be more of an instance of projection. But this is their new meme. Robert Malone is their new hero and the new meme is mass formation psychosis and they lack the ability or awareness to realize it applies to them better than to anybody else.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with The Mehdi Hassan Show in two parts discussing the anti-science mentality of the Republican Party, which has been intentionally stoked. Democracy Now! spoke with Noam Chomsky about why you don't have to trust vaccine manufacturers to trust the effectiveness of the vaccines. Straight White American Jesus in two parts discussed Aaron Rodgers' science versus opinion and why individuals should be respected, not necessarily their opinions. This Is Hell, in two parts, discussed the history of vaccine intellectual property rights that signed the death warrants of potentially millions, and The David Pakman Show highlighted the new conservative talking point that applies perfectly to themselves, though they can't see it. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Reveal, who did a deep dive on the origins of the vaccine microchip conspiracy, and Democracy Now which discussed a new patent-free vaccine that is set to be distributed widely across the world. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you will receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com/support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now We'll hear from you.
11: Hey, Jay, it's Abdul again, calling from the Charleston, South Carolina area. you probably figured out I'm really enjoying this most recent conversation. This is my second time calling on this topic. I think one of the things that helped me make sense of this categorizing versus essentializing or people in the spectrum is this idea of uh, noticing different without ascribing meaning to that. So for instance, even in the black community, uh, I'm a black person myself, there are differences perceived or recognized in skin tone, skin color, hair texture, even eye color. The problem becomes when we ascribe meaning to different. And I realize that this is a little bit on a different note from the question of sexual orientation versus socially constructed racialized categories. But I find that you know it, it helps me to, to make sense of my own sort of complicated feelings around skin color or sexual orientation or whatever is that it's okay to notice that people are different we all have different skin color hair texture height size weight body shape you know whatever but it's when we ascribe meaning uh, and usually in the case of racism and homophobia these meanings that we ascribe are often negative that the problem begin anyway
12: love the show and really enjoying the conversation keep up the great work hi jay this is Quai again just heard your wonderful explanation and the added layers of logic and research that you applied to uh, scott's question about categorizing people and uh, i thought that was really well stated really on point point. and i just wanted to add something a nuance from my own perspective which is that when I originally made the uh, comment about human beings, I purposely used the word tier because I was trying to, st- I was struggling to find a word that would express value or worthiness or goodness versus badness involving judgment more so than categorization. I think um, what you said about categorization is really important because when we take these categories as, I don't know, uh, When we reify these categories, make them very real things in our minds, they can certainly lead to judgment of worth and value, but of course there are many differences, and we can safely categorize ourselves for what that's worth in any given situation, as long as we don't make distinctions about the value, or the worth, or the goodness of a person due to any category. And I think that is really where I was trying to make my point. And just as a personal note, I'll say that it's something that I struggle with as well because when I see people online or hear people make comments that are in support of fascism or racism or sexism, all of the things that, that count people as less valuable because of category, or actually evil because of the category. My tendency is to think that they are less valuable, but uh, I have to return to my own principle and say that person is of equal worth and respect the person. And I think I think I even heard you comment about this at one point, how we can respect one another as human beings and still vehemently. Defend our position and fight for what we think of as right And that's the tension that has to live in our minds and hearts is that you know, I can fight against someone that I consider a brother and fight till the end of whatever the fight is (laughs) and Still respect that person as a brother or sister. And if we can do that then our winning and losing that will inevitably come along the way will still be painful but perhaps not as horrifying and won't weigh so heavily on our our hearts so that's that's really where i was going the use of the word tear maybe there's a better word than tear to express value but categories they can be okay tears value judgments not so much Thanks, Jay. I really appreciate your insights. Stay awesome.
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991. Real quick, just for the full context of those voicemails we just heard, this is an ongoing conversation. You can hear messages in episodes 1461, 1463, and 1464, all leading up to this. I have lots to say today. Uh, the first is Kwai and his thoughts on using the term tier versus category. And I will admit that I did not have these thoughts consciously when responding to him. I just sort of naturally gravitated toward category. I didn't really think too much about his use of the term tier, but now I have put some thought into it. And here's what I think. I think that I gravitated towards the term category instead of tier because creating category almost inevitably leads to those tiers being seen as having different values or being tiers, as Kwai points out. So that is an important point. But if you're speaking to someone who thinks that it's appropriate to essentialize people into different categories, again, to essentialize really never makes sense when describing superficial differences in people, whereas descriptors... It's perfectly fine. That's, that's what Abdul was, uh, you know, putting a finer point on. But if someone is essentializing people into categories, but insists that they are not applying a different value to those categories, then they'll see your use of tier as a descriptor to imply a different value to the categories as they are describing them as a straw man version of their argument. So I would point out that the tiering of categories, the the applying different values to different categories, I would say that that is a clear and present danger to essentializing and categorizing people based on superficial ideas, but it is not absolutely fundamental. So if you don't want to set someone off by making them feel accused of something that they don't believe, then start with the more fundamental categorization, and then work your way up to the problems of value and tiering of those categories, which is almost certainly going to happen, but work your way up to that. That, that, That's my basic thoughts. Kwai's other point that uh, just was great timing for today, you know, he talked about the valuing of people versus the valuing of ideas. And then we had that amazing clip from straight white American Jesus where they talk about that exact idea. People are to be respected, not necessarily their ideas. Ideas are to be respected when they earn respect. People are to be respected as people, no matter what, just because they're people. But a person who deserves respect as a person may have terrible ideas that deserve no respect at all. Now, I just want to finish up with a little story of how sometimes things seem simple after they're explained, but are incredibly hard to wrap your mind around beforehand. That's how I felt about that little explanation about people versus ideas that was so clarifying, but then felt so obvious when I when I came to the other side of it. I was like, "Ah, oh, why couldn't I have thought of that myself?" But ideas like that can be sort of muddled when the conversation is going along very logically. And then you don't notice the moment that you pivot from logic to illogic. And then you, you realize like, okay, things don't sound right anymore, but I am having trouble putting my finger on exactly why. And so, so recently I had this kind of experience, uh, when I, I was trying to explain something and it was relatively logical, but just really convoluted. I was trying to explain the difference between a goal and a tactic that one would use to achieve that goal. But I didn't use those words at first because I didn't think of them. And I, I just ended up sort of making a, a mess at it. 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 It was still logical, but just harder to understand. So I was comparing my core political philosophy, which is to reduce suffering, with what libertarians often describe as their core philosophy, which is some version of freedom or a reduction in coercion or freedom from coercion or something like that. And so I came up with an analogy and argued that the idea of reducing suffering is as fundamental as the goal of driving safely while pursuing the ideas of freedom and reduced coercion are more along the lines of turning right so as to avoid turning left across oncoming traffic, which is a tactic or a strategy for driving safely. And so, you know, the point is that in countries where one drives on the right side of the road, it is safer to turn right than left. So in the interest of safety, you could decide to always make three right turns Every single time you want to turn left, and that would arguably be safer because you'd never have to turn across oncoming traffic. But that doesn't mean that you should adopt a right turning philosophy of driving. You should still adopt the more fundamental philosophy of safe driving. And in pursuit of driving safely, you may decide that it is appropriate to always turn right. So, uh, you know, I I think this makes sense. It's relatively logical, but it's a a little convoluted. And here's where I really try to make my point. The point is that turning right is only safer than turning left most of the time, maybe even the vast majority of the time, but not 100% of the time. There's no way there's always going to be some edge case, some scenario in which turning right is strangely more dangerous than turning left. And that's why you wouldn't want to follow a right turning philosophy. You'd want to follow a safe driving philosophy so as to not be blinded by your right turn always philosophy. That's, you know, it's only correct most, but not all of the time. So maintaining a safe driving philosophy rather than the more constrained right turning philosophy is the best way to keep your mind open to the best course of action on a case-by-case basis. So I said all of that. I laid out this whole analogy. And it makes sense, but it's just sort of convoluted and, and potentially hard to follow. And then a couple of days went by, and I realized that if I had just used the words goals and tactics or goals and strategies in place of philosophies of different types or whatever then it would have been so much simpler and, and it was just like that feeling i had when the speaker said that people should be respected not their ideas was just like oh right it's so clear now and the analogy just to put a really fine point on it is that pursuing freedom or reduced coercion as libertarians prioritize are reasonably good strategies for reducing suffering most of the time Just not 100% of the time. So pursuing those as your goal instead of merely using them as a strategy is going to inevitably lead you to some occasionally bad conclusions that end up unnecessarily exacerbating suffering because you prioritize a reduction in coercion above the actual end result of that action. And the current example is one of the best. By prioritizing the usually dependable strategy of uh, you know freedom or lack of coercion over the more fundamental focus on a reduction in suffering, libertarian ideas are at the forefront of opposing incredibly reasonable levels of very mild coercion to encourage people to get vaccinated. I mean the military is a sort of its own thing, you basically sign over your body to be property of the government. But in the private sector, where most of the focus on on the mandates are, not only is uh, I think that reasonable to begin with, but it includes a giant exception that allows for frequent testing in place of getting vaccinated. So in other words, it's literally not a vaccine mandate. It is a vaccine or don't get vaccinated and just get tested frequently to keep other people safe should be completely unobjectionable so what we have done as a country with our policy is actually to put a lot of weight on freedom and applying a minimum of coercion even though we could reduce illness suffering and death even more if we were more heavy-handed in our vaccine mandate policies and so if you're someone like me who sees a reduction in suffering as the ultimate goal then this seems perfectly reasonable. But if you're someone who mistakenly believes that freedom from coercion is the greatest end goal in and of itself, rather than simply a tactic or a strategy to follow in pursuit of a higher goal, then all you can see in a vaccine or testing mandate is an infringement on your core goal, which is I mean, I guess to do whatever you want, regardless of whether it causes suffering or not. So in summary, keep things simple by using the best words available at any any given time. In this case, goals and tactics, which I had forgotten to use previously in my analogy last time I tried to explain it, and then decide on your fundamental goal. I promise you that freedom from coercion is not a good fundamental goal, and then start working out the tactics to achieve your goal, of which freedom from coercion is often but not always a good strategy or tactic in pursuit of that goal. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co hosting, and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our patreon or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.